and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and I'm an MBA candidate at the Wharton School. On today's episode, I sit down with Tim Levine, co-founder and CEO of Augmentum FinTech. Augmentum invests in fast-growing FinTech businesses that are disrupting financial services. Augmentum is the UK's only publicly listed investment company that focuses on fintech in the UK and wider Europe, having launched on the London Stock Exchange in 2018. As well as being an active investor, Tim is an experienced entrepreneur, having co-founded juice bar business Crush and betting exchange Flutter.com, the latter of which became one of the highest profile internet businesses in the UK after it merged with Betfair.com. In this episode, Tim covers his journey from Bain consultant to entrepreneur, getting started in a fledgling European VC and entrepreneurship scene, the decision to go public as a VC, some of the portfolio companies he's focusing on, and much more. Let's get started. So Tim, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you on the show. Delighted to be here, Ron. Thanks for having me. So to start, could you tell us about your background up until the founding of Augmentum FinTech? Sure. Um, well, I was um, somewhat began my career with a conventional path. I started in the world of consultancy with Bain and Company. Funny enough, I studied Russian in the early 90s. So I worked in Moscow for a period, which was an extraordinarily interesting time in the early 90s uh, in the midst of privatization and managed to navigate my, uh, my way out of uh, Moscow, which was a pretty bleak winter uh, to Sydney. And so kind of had a, a real contrasting uh, set of um, geographic experiences at Bain, but it was kind of a great grounding for me. But really, I always had a burning desire to try my hand as an entrepreneur. And I think now, you know, the word entrepreneur is incredibly widely used, overused often, and is hugely aspirational. I would say, you know, in 1997, when I stepped out of what was regarded as a, you know, conventional a well-regarded career path to do something that I uh, told my family uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was almost as if, oh, you just want to take a year off and travel. So, uh, you know, it's a very different environment to, uh, to where we were back then, but I've certainly never looked back. And in 1998, I kicked off a project and opened what became the first juice and smoothie bars in the UK. Um, it's a business now called Crush. Uh, it's still operational. There are over 30 stores largely uh, throughout London. But my kind of ambitions were somewhat curtailed by really the first signs of traction in the internet back in the late 90s. And a couple of ex-colleagues of, uh, of mine from Bain, funnily enough, who were working out of the San Francisco office, came to London with an idea about uh, disrupting the global betting industry. Now, there isn't a huge betting industry, or certainly there wasn't back in the late 90s in, uh, in California, probably a little bit closer to, uh, to Vegas, but there was a lot of resistance, as there still is actually in the US 20 plus years later for regulated online, uh, online gambling. And so we, we launched a business uh, that was a pioneer and a real disruptor, huge disruptor uh, in the betting industry here in the UK, where we've created a peer-to-peer -peer betting platform that really disintermediated the bookmakers and that business was launched under the name flutter.com it merged with a business called betfair in 2001 and i went across to join that business launched our international business and ran the commercial side of that for many years which took me to asia for an extended period and that business has gone from strength to strength ironically it's been renamed in the past 12 to 18 months 
flutter. So the old name has kind of come back, but it's that's more a, a situation of the uh, significant number of assets that have been accumulated over recent years. So the holding company is now Flutter Entertainment and it's a FTSE 100 business now. So it was a great story, great journey to be part of and really kind of taught me a huge amount in an era where I guess there wasn't a huge amount of you know, success stories, in particular in Europe, uh, digital success stories. So it wasn't a proposition where, uh, although we were all very young in our 20s uh, and frankly winging it at times, it wasn't a situation where you could hire in talent that had been there and done it before. So having exited Betfair and spent six years in Asia, really for me, the next challenge was, you know, what next and how to reinvent myself again. European venture capital was pretty uh, immature, in particular when, you know, we launched Flutter back in 99, 2000, a very few venture firms, a handful of venture firms really doing what you would regard as traditional venture capital. Um, and there was a lack of entrepreneurial DNA in those firms. And, you know, roll forward 10 years, I still felt having come back to the UK that there was an opportunity for a more entrepreneurial led VC fund. Uh, now, what I had underestimated was one, the challenge of raising capital and two, the challenge of, of also adapting to becoming an investor. And um, I think it requires a very different skill set than being a more traditional entrepreneur. And so I've really been on that journey for the past 10 plus years. We were backed by um, a listed company in the UK, backed um, by the Rothschild family, Lord Rothschild, it's called RIT Capital and FTSE 250 Investment Trust. And they took a real bet on me that I could kind of adapt and learn, you know, how to become an effective investor. And really that was the beginning in 2009 of the Augmentum journey. I think what became quite clear early on was that differentiation was really important. I think we were seeing you know, a significant number of new venture firms uh, being built and you know, one really needed to stand out from the crowd. And it wasn't just enough to have had that kind of entrepreneurial operating experience. I wouldn't say we were dime a dozen, but there were you know, a significant number of operators that were turned investors. And so it was important really for us to, to look for further differentiation. And so specialization in, in financial services felt like a really kind of interesting opportunity. And we felt that the UK and London in particular was the center of gravity for global financial services. And, disruption had, uh, you know, had and was taking a lot longer than they expected. So they felt back in 2009-10 that there was a big opportunity to come in financial services. And obviously that digitization uh, became, known, became known as fintech. And, you know, that's something we've been uh, developing a real deep understanding and expertise ever since. Augmentum Fintech is publicly traded and has to be one of the only VCs in the world that's listed. I know this is common for PE firms, but why did you choose to list publicly? Yeah, it's a good question, Ryan. And having just kind of navigated uh, the first part of the pandemic and seeing our share price initially halve in a matter of a couple of weeks, I think I asked myself the same question many times. Why on earth would we do that? Although I sit here today on June 24th and we're currently trading above our uh, pre-pandemic share price. So it's good to see that we've recovered. But I think coming back to the point I've made before about differentiation and, you know, two or three years ago, it became clear, you know, to us as a, as a very small team, having cut our teeth with our first fund, learned a huge amount, made some good decisions, made some bad decisions, but came out of the experience with positive 
a result and a good track record. You know, there were a lot of subscale funds in the European ecosystem. Further differentiation and scale were important. And to be perfectly frank, we were looking for areas where we could tap other pots of capital, but also tap into the demand of retail investors who had a huge interest in fintech. Um, were unable really to get direct exposure to the asset class in a diversified way. And, you know, we brainstormed the idea of, you know, what if we created a publicly listed fund in a structure that we call here in the UK an investment trust, so it's a closed-ended fund. You're not forced to sell your assets. So people can buy, you know, investors can buy and sell shares, but they will buy and sell shares according to the prevailing share price, but your capital is preserved as well as your assets. So it's in effect permanent capital and it's evergreen. You can recycle any returns and realizations that are coming into the fund. So what attracted us to that type of structure was one, that you could be more patient. We all recognize that you know, venture-backed businesses often take longer than you expect. Um, and what we didn't want to uh, do was be guided uh, or be restricted to a certain investment uh, period, but also the opportunity to be able to continue to you know, invest through the cycle if we felt that um, we could carry on holding on to investment and weren't forced to sell it as a result of you know, almost getting to our next fund. That would just allow us to be focused very much on driving the best possible returns for our investors, but not being distracted or potentially conflicted by motivation to you know, raise, a, raise another fund or build a track record. And at the same time, we felt that we would build a platform that could get to scale quickly, assuming uh, we were able to be successful, and also open up this asset class, both retail investors, but also that public market investor that was looking for exposure to fintech in the public markets, but was quite limited in terms of choice. And I think there are a number of self-styled global public equity fintech funds. But when you look under the hood and you look at the assets that are in there, there are some very good companies. But these are companies that you and I perhaps wouldn't sit there and say, wow, this is a, this is a classic fintech. So, you know, you'll see the likes of PayPal and Visa and MasterCard, a lot of kind of payment adyen in the Netherlands, so a lot of kind of very significant players but not necessarily really kind of uncovering the next PayPal or the next Adyen um, uh, or, or equivalent. So that's been a real challenge of public equity fund managers because even though there are some very significant fintech companies uh, being built, the majority of them aren't coming to the public market. I think there's a number of reasons for that. You know, one of the reasons is companies are just staying private for longer because there's so much more private capital. But two, at the point of kind of scale or at the point when an IPO might be appropriate, in many cases, these businesses are being taken out by incumbents. Um, and I think there are no bigger or more powerful balance sheets than existing financial institutions. And, you know, we only need to look at Visa's acquisition of Plaid. I think MasterCard yesterday or the day before acquired, I think, Felicity uh, for a billion dollars. Um, so... Clearly, these are propositions that are posing one competitive threat, but two, the threat of a competitor, an established competitor getting hold of them, is creating a real kind of M&A uh, opportunity, which is great for fintechs, but not necessarily so great if you're a public market investor. And I think we've put some statistics out there saying that 
94, 95% of all acquisitions in the fintech space will happen before they get to the public market. And so you've got very, you're going to have slim pickings as a public market investor in order to get access to the very best fintechs. And not only that, you know, assuming you get to the public markets, if you are that public market investor, you will have missed a lot of that appreciation, the J curve. You're coming in perhaps at the top of the J curve because companies are coming to the market much later. And so how do you get access to that phenomenal early growth? And I think we feel that, you know, our listed structure provides exposure in a diversified way. So um, what stands us out is very much the structure that we have and also, uh, you know, the lack of uh, alternative structures for those public market investors to access. But we'd love to see more of us, to be honest, because you know, at the current time, you know, we're certainly nowhere near the scale that we, uh, we would hope to be. But also, there is so much opportunity in this space. Um, we think it would be incredibly beneficial to have more peers uh, in the listed space. So looking forward to, uh, to being the pioneer, but certainly not being the last. Yeah, absolutely. So how have analysts tracked your earnings, given VC can be so volatile and portfolio valuation can often be more of an art than a science at the early stages? Yeah, I mean, I think when you are, in effect, a, a sample size of one, it's quite a challenge for, uh, you know, analysts to write about you. So we would be regarded in the UK, you know, as an investment trust. And so the typical investment trust analysts would look at us and the underlying assets in our portfolio would be assets that they're not particularly familiar with. They might well be writing about you know, property REITs or low yielding infrastructure, solar infrastructure platforms. So, you know, what we've had to do over the past two years since uh, we've been listed is really go on a a education uh, exercise, both not just to the investment trust analyst community, but also to the tech analyst community, as well as the, you know, the FIG analyst to say, look, here is a structure that we'd love you to understand in more detail and also get familiar with the underlying assets because we believe there are a number of assets in our portfolio that you will be writing about in two or three years time and frankly we think a financial services analyst is going to have a better idea of writing about the underlying assets than perhaps an investment trust analyst so we've really kind of been on that education journey one to educate them about fintech uh, and the potential, and I think we've kind of, you know, we've made a good start, but there's a long way to go. And two, you're you're absolutely right to raise the challenge of valuations because I would say, you know, of the hundreds of investor meetings that I have, the most common question I have in in every meeting is, you know, how do how do you value the underlying portfolio companies, and how can we get comfortable with that? And I think you know all you can do is you know try and articulate you know, one, the approach that you take, two, how venture typically structures deals, i.e., you know, with downside protection, with preference, with anti-dilution to say, we might be paying a high headline price in some cases, but if we're valuing it at cost, then we're protected uh, by being at the top of the stack. So in effect, this business needs to fall by 90%, for us to have to write down, you know, our pricing here. And, you know, that again is just, you know, us articulating effectively, you know, how we value and often how venture works, which is, you know, can be quite different to, you know, more traditional private equity. But I'd say what we try not to do 
is get tied up in knots uh, and spend the vast majority of our time discussing valuation purely because you, you are right to say it's it's often subjective we want to focus on you know the significant potential that the underlying portfolio companies have um, that we are still early in the journey the portfolio is developing uh, and the upside is to come and so the test of i think our success will not be whether you know our share price goes up or down significantly over the next 12 to 18 months but over the next two to three years, I would say, as the realizations start to flow, that will be the kind of the first true test of have we invested effectively and are we delivering returns to our portfolio, um, well, to, you know, to our portfolio of investors um, and reinvesting them effectively. So pivoting to your portfolio companies that you mentioned, can you talk about the blend of portfolio companies that you have and some of the companies you've been most excited about recently? Yeah, I think we've... You know, fintech is, is such a broad church um, and often what many people define as fintech, we scratch our head and say, well, we can see a, we can see a financial services angle here, but it's somewhat tenuous. I guess we have focused on those businesses that are more disruptive, tend to be kind of challenger brands, you know, perhaps disintermediating uh, a more traditional play. So the key focuses have been around banking, uh, have been around, you know, what we would define as kind of, I guess, asset and wealth management. And then those businesses in that are kind of the pipes and infrastructure, you know, fueling the growth. You know, the one area where we haven't yet got exposure, although we spend a lot of time and energy looking at it, is insurance as well. So that would kind of be, those will kind of be the core areas for us. And we are European focused. The center of gravity for us is London. I mean, over half of all venture capital and fintech is you know, out of the UK, uh, across the whole of Europe. So we, I guess there's more invested here than the rest of Europe put together. So, you know, there is a significant market outside of the UK and outside of London, but the financial center in Europe is absolutely here in London. The DNA is here. We also have a very progressive, when it comes to innovation, regulator, central bank, and a, and a supportive, you know, succession of governments that have had fintech at the heart of their agenda as well. So that's kind of created a phenomenal ecosystem here in the UK. So for us, you know, we are focused on these European businesses. 16 of our 18 are headquartered in London, although many of them have pan-European offices. Uh, we have a business in Germany, we have a business in Switzerland as well. But increasingly, we're looking in markets such as France and, and Germany. Uh, and Sweden for opportunities are there. And there have been some very significant businesses built there. Um, I think one area that, you know, we're increasingly focused on and, and excited about has been the opportunities in the SME space. I'm not sure in the US if you, uh, if you use the same terms for small, medium enterprises, but, you know, in effect, it's small businesses. And, you know, it's an area of, you know, significant size and scale. It powers really in many respects, the UK and European economy. They've been hugely underserved across you know, many different areas, whether it's you know, more traditional banking or lending, and it's a significant growth area. And I think when you look at the margins that have been available perhaps to the larger institutions, you know, we felt that the typical uh, small business has been kind of overcharged and delivered pretty poor service uh, and pretty poor digital solutions over time. And so, whereas a lot of focus in capital and venture has gone to what I would regard as more one-dimensional consumer neo-banking uh, plays, not to say that they aren't you know, attractive in their own right at times, uh, but we felt this was an area that was somewhat under the radar. And that's been kind of a sector where we've, uh, we've invested heavily in the past you know, 12 to 18 months. We've backed 
the largest digital challenger uh, small business bank called Tide here in the UK, which has gone from zero to 3% market share in, in two and a half years. So now it's over 200,000 businesses um, who, are, who are banking with them. And you know, what they're doing is, is something quite simple, but has proven quite difficult for, for the small business in the past, which is you know, open a bank business bank account in a matter of hours rather than a matter of weeks, days, or even in some cases, months. And we just want our small businesses to be able to get on with what they do best, which is run their business, rather than have themselves occupied with very difficult banking issues, doing their accounting. And so we've kind of built a suite of, um, I guess, companies that you know, really attack the, uh, the opportunity across a number of different ways. So the likes of Receipt Bank, which has become you know, a godsend and a savior to nearly half a million businesses who, you know, who are using them for you know, digital bookkeeping as well, or the likes of iWaka, which is providing you know, SME lending. So an alternative to, to an overdraft and the ability to get uh, short-term lending capital very quickly as well. So, you know, that's certainly one theme which continues to play out. Um, you know, these are businesses that have grown extraordinarily quickly and there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot still, still to come. I think, you know, quite a, a business that, that I talk about quite a lot, which, you know, I probably enjoy, I, I sit on the board as a business called Farewell. And at first blush, it's probably not one of those businesses that you think you could get incredibly excited about. It's actually one of the first digital businesses in death services. So what do I mean by death services? It's the provision of wills and you know, the associated challenges probate. You know, when, a, when a will is uh, executed, there is quite a long process here in the UK. I'm not sure what the US equivalent is, but it kind of gets tied up in, in legal complexity. And the historical kind of approach has been you would go to your high street law firm and they would help you kind of navigate the will and manage the probate and eventually the assets would flow to the beneficiaries. And, that will often cost you a princely sum, and often it's you know three or four percent of the actual asset base. So it's an industry that, again, in our view, has been very low tech, very high cost, very um, people intensive. You know, one in which has been quite opaque. And I think if you think about death as being one of the, if not the biggest financial event in your life. And I think even if we just look at the UK, you're going to have a trillion pounds of assets transferred over the next seven or eight years. You know, when, when you look at the sophistication and the digitization of that industry, um, it has been largely untouched. And so to back a business such as Farewell, um, which is an extraordinarily talented, but also a very young team. And so you know, frankly, when you look at the business of death, it's not something that generates huge enthusiasm amongst, you know, a lot of young, talented, uh, you know, tech disruptors. But this is one extraordinarily dedicated team who want to make the experience for those, you know, involved in what is a very difficult, uh, often very difficult and emotional situation, much easier, much more seamless and much less costly. And, you know, that is a business that has, you know, scaled tremendously well over the past, you know, 18 months and is very much, you know, in the public eye at the moment as, you know, we have 75% of UK adults that don't have a will. And when you're in the midst of a pandemic, one's mortality suddenly comes to the fore. And so having a will becomes increasingly important. And, you know, to be able to offer, you know, families a very seamless 
digital and you know cost-effective solution you know it's been very powerful uh, for them so that's kind of one business to, to watch and you know I'm sure there is an equivalent in the US you know being built if, it, if it's not being built already and so it is a really kind of significant opportunity and often shows you that it's not often the, the most obviously exciting businesses on the outset that uh, you know drive the motivation but I think when you find a business that as an extraordinary management team and also solving a really significant problem that cuts across so many different demographics, uh, then you know, it's, it's incredibly exciting to be part of that story. And I think it's got a long way to go. Yeah, Farewell is a great business. We're actually gonna be hosting them on the podcast later this month. So glad you brought them up. We're excited to chat with them. Fantastic, well, you'll, you'll enjoy that. You'll enjoy that because they're very charismatic uh, CEO. Be a great interview. So moving to your investment process, how do you make your sourcing and investment decisions more specifically, what have been helpful frameworks for you to evaluate businesses at each stage? So I think we've seen a real evolution in the past 10 years of deal sourcing. I think you know, data analytics has started to play a much bigger role than the old venture approach of nurturing relationships and it's who you know. I think it's become more meritocratic, more data-driven. Uh, there's still, I think, a long way to go. Uh, personal relations are, relationships are important. I would still argue that venture is a hyper-local industry, so you need to be tapped into your uh, local ecosystem. I think for us, you know, one of our advantages, uh, not just being public, so that raises the profile, is being specialist as well. So, you know, being one of the few fintech-only investors, you know, stands you out as, uh, you know, somebody that should understand the, the space and so companies do often you know want to seek your input and advice um, and so it's incredibly important for us to make sure we've got coverage you know of that ecosystem in particular in the uk but across europe as well where we're kind of building out uh, some you know scouting capabilities there and it really is you know making sure that you know one we're very clear on our thesis and how they develop and evolve you know mapping out you know the market considerably and also, although we're a Series A and later investor, and we'll invest, you know, all the way you know, to to pre-IPO, because the you know, the benefit of having that permanent capital means that even if it's a short uh, turnaround, uh, that money flows back into the listed vehicle as well. So we can we can invest uh, later and help close out rounds. But ultimately, our bread and butter would be kind of the Series A and B. But it's really making sure we've got strong coverage of that, you know, of that seed uh, market understanding you know who are the up-and-coming stars being clear on what we're looking for you know having that kind of courage of conviction and then being able to move quickly you know i think there are some very strong brands here in europe that will appeal rightly so to a lot of founders you know we have a strong brand within fintech but ultimately we still got a lot to prove and so we have to be very much on the front foot and it is you know farewell will be a good example that was heavily courted by I guess the what would be defined as the tier one or self self style tier one investors in the European venture market, and you know what we like to articulate is one where we can bring a differentiated approach. Yes, we're you know we're all ex operators and entrepreneurs, so we built and scale businesses, and that that goes a long way. But also how we're prepared to collaborate and work alongside other investors, and also just moving very quickly and kind of taking a no-nonsense approach. And so I would like to think that there, there aren't many businesses that we don't know, 
The question is you don't always know when they're raising and it sometimes comes as a surprise when you hear that X, Y and Z has you know, invested in a round that you didn't know was happening. So we've got to be ahead of the curve. You know, we're a small team, we're a nimble team, we're a very hardworking team and our reach goes, uh, goes far. But you can't compete in terms of reach with 70, 80 or even kind of global venture teams that have huge resources. So we need to make sure we remain very focused very targeted um, and you know on the front foot so it's still a lot of hard work blood sweat and tears to get access to the very best deals and also to convince founders as to why you know they should take your money I would say it's it's still a market where you know the very best companies have their pick um, of the very best investors and that keeps us uh, keeps us honest are there any automatic deal breakers for you and your team that you look for when doing a diligence process or conversely certain traits that get you interested every time? I mean, I think there would be the typical deal breakers of, you know, standard terms that somebody didn't want to sign up to. I think we try and operate within the, what's regarded as, you know, very plain vanilla approach. So I think that, that goes without saying. I think for us, clearly we're going to be driven, you know, we're quite data driven as a team. But we're also entrepreneurial, so we like to be intuitive too. The connection has to absolutely, the chemistry absolutely has to be there. And I guess the earlier we invest, the more critical that chemistry is because we're often the first institutional investor um, and we will work very closely with the founding team and collaborate. And they have to kind of respect your view. You have to respect what, what the uh, company are doing and you need to be giving them the leeway because nothing ever goes as the business plan suggests, as we know. You'll get there often in the end, but not quite how you thought you were. So, you know, we want to collaborate. Uh, we want to be constructive. We want to be engaged and involved, but in the right way. And so, you know, for us, it's not just about the concept. It's not just about the potential. It's not just about the metrics, but it absolutely is about uh, the team, the capability, their ability to scale, and, uh, you know, how well we interact with them. I think if we can find all of those ingredients, you know, then we'll absolutely uh, do whatever we can, uh, assuming the, the pricing is, uh, is reasonable to, uh, to convert that opportunity. Now moving to COVID, I'm sure you were anticipating a few questions on this. Can you talk us through kind of those first two months of the global pandemic, March to end of April, how it affected Augmentum, your portfolio companies and investment process? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I guess I've worked through two crises before, but very different environments. 2008, I was in Asia, 2000, and we just launched Flutter and just raised capital just before the dot-com bust. So that was interesting timing. But this was certainly nothing I'd experienced before. And also, I was in a very different position career-wise. So, you know, immediately you go into kind of, I guess, your operational instincts kick in. So I think we very much, you know, focused overwhelmingly across the portfolio. So there were one or two deals that we were working on and, you know, both of those deals actually paused from the company side, which I think, um, you know, made sense. The deal flow, you know, engine we paused and, you know, it was all hands on deck. So, you know, all 18 companies, you know, we engaged directly. Uh, I mean, we typically have a board, a board seat. So we're very much in the, in, in the firing line in the eye of the storm. Um, and I would say it was a daily regime of Zoom calls 
uh, probably from dusk to dawn and, uh, and dawn to dusk. So um, extraordinarily intense. But I think most importantly was one, making sure that you know, the companies recognize the severity of what was coming because entrepreneurs tend to be extraordinarily optimistic. Um, and in many cases, you know, they're first time CEOs. And so they wouldn't have experienced anything like this before. And as such, you wanted to make sure that, you know, their eyes were open. And, you know, I would say on reflection, you know, the majority of the portfolio have done an extraordinary job in terms of adapting uh, quickly. You know, the number one thing is to make sure you've got enough cash runway um, to understand the impact on uh, on the business in terms of revenues, customers, both existing and prospective. Clearly the cost base comes into question, that discretionary cost, but also kind of people cost as well. What do you want to pause? Uh, what don't you want to pause? Uh, what can you defer? And it really does become an exercise. Now, I think the big challenge with COVID was really understanding the, the actual impact it would have over the, over the short and medium term, because it was a very, kind of very volatile trading environment. I think for us, you know, we had some accidental COVID hedges that were performing exceptionally well in the uncertainty. So the likes of Fairwell, as an example, is, is one in which they probably were 10x up on the same period last year. So Bullion Vault, which is the largest retail investment platform for precious metals, so gold, silver, uh, they were up 400%. So there was, you know, significant demand, Interactive Investor, which is one of the largest, uh, you know, online share trading platforms, I guess, you know, similar to a, a Schwab. Um, you know, they, they were seeing record trading levels. So, you know, we had businesses that were overwhelmed with demand. And on the flip side of that, we had businesses that, you know, were seeing 50% reduction in, um, in volume. Um, and so I, I think the nice thing about having a diversified portfolio was that, you know, you had problems on both sides of the spectrum. Um, of course, um, I would say the priority went to those businesses where, you know, we had the most concern and really working with the management teams to ensure that one, we were there for when they needed us and to help them think through the strategic imperatives that needed to happen, both in the short term and medium term. Um, I think the biggest difficulty for us was trying to predict because there was no historical benchmark precedent. Uh, so it was very hard to say, okay, here's what's going to happen after month two and, and month four. So we're still working through that. Um, and, you know, in some cases we've extended runway by raising capital for some of our businesses um, and some of that is still in flow. Um, and in other cases we've made, uh, you know, with the companies some sensible kind of cost reductions, uh, some temporary and, uh, and we'll have to see how it plays out. But I'll say the portfolio has been pretty resilient and, you know, a large part of it, about 40% of the portfolio has, has performed above expectation um, because it's, you know, got this kind of perhaps natural hedge to, to the current environment as well. So the big question is, you know, what, is, what does the new normal look like? And I think we'll see in the autumn, you know, once, you know, the lockdown hopefully um, is over, things go back to the pre-COVID levels and take it from there. But... I think when you are a fast moving, nimble, dynamic startup, and startup I'd use in kind of broad terms because it's often you know, a business that's four or five years old with four or 500 people, you can move quickly and you can adapt. And I think if you are an incumbent financial institution with thousands of people, uh, in some cases tens of thousands of people, and you've got enormous kind of challenges elsewhere, 
it's quite hard to be nimble and to, at the best of times in a crisis even harder. And I think, um, you know, it is a distinct advantage for uh, these smaller, more dynamic tech-led businesses where work from home wasn't a novelty. Uh, it had been, you know, in operation for some time, albeit not 24-7. So, uh, you know, I think they were at a distinct disadvantage, uh, sorry, at a distinct advantage and have adapted incredibly well. But, you know, the important thing is we're not through it all. Uh, I think the repercussions will still be felt as a, you know, globally. The question is, you know, when will you see some of the signs of that real distress play through in the tech and fintech uh, industry, both here in Europe, but also in the US as well. And, you know, perhaps we'll start to see some of that as, as cash runways run out in Q3, Q4. Uh, and there'll be some interesting M&A opportunities as well that you know, I'm sure we'll all, be, we'll all be looking out. And also some consolidation um, where businesses have been operating on unsustainable cash you know, cost runways, um, but ultimately there's a fundamentally good business there, um, but perhaps it needs to scale and you can piece, you know, one, two, three fintechs together, um, make them more efficient and actually build a really scalable, long-term profitable business. And I think we'll see some opportunities there develop as well. So it might well, uh, and we expect it to accelerate uh, the evolution um, of this industry in a, in a good way, um, you know, but also in some, in some cases it will accelerate the demise of, you know, a, a number of uh, tech startups as well. But, you know, that was, that was inevitable. It's just probably going to happen a little sooner than expected. I'm sure you were expecting this question, but moving to COVID-19, can you talk about what it was like as a manager and investor and for each of your portfolio companies? Well, I think, you know, venture capital traditionally was extraordinarily difficult industry to get into purely because there weren't many of us. And, you know, the number of funds themselves were small and the size of the teams tended to be very small. I think it's an industry that has grown considerably. Um, and I think the opportunity is far broader, but it's still a hard industry to crack. I think ultimately for us, you know, we are always looking for that entrepreneurial DNA and so you know if you can get any opportunity to intern or work as an analyst and then step out after a year or two and join a startup and see what you know the good and the bad looks like I think it ultimately will make you a better better investor in the long run it doesn't mean that you can't kind of create a career from start to finish in venture but I always, I think, you know, it's the exception rather than the rule that if you haven't been an entrepreneur or if you haven't been an entrepreneurial environment, it's quite hard to be a judge of, you know, what does a good uh, or bad, you know, business look like. And I think having had that experience, um, it certainly opened my eyes. But I think the flip side being, I certainly underestimated how challenging it would be to go on the investment side um, and have spent the last 10 years learning and still think I've got a huge amount to learn as well. So I think, you know, from a starting point, if you can find an opportunity where you can get exposure in one way or another to, um, you know, to, to a venture firm, but also to be part of a venture-backed business um, from the early stage, and I think that's invaluable uh, as well. So, you know, that would be my, my advice for those kind of looking to break in. I guess for those trying to raise the fund, it's unbelievably hard now, even though there's more capital being allocated to venture capital than ever before, there are more funds in existence than ever before. And as I, you know, we talked earlier on, you know, the challenge for us was that we were just becoming another subscale venture fund. And so the desire to 
uh, list, you know, was a was a really important uh, next step for us to be able to kind of break out of this, you know, fifty, sixty million dollar fund and to, you know, build something that we hope will be, a, you know, a multi hundred million dollar fund and not have to wait 10, 15 years to get there. So I think, you know, that that is the challenge. L, traditional LPs, they want to see a track record. Um, and so I think, you know, ironically, it's harder now in many cases to raise a fund because there are so many more uh, compelling uh, propositions out there. But also you need to get lucky as well. You've got to find the right person at the right time. I think for my first fund, you know, having been backed by, you know, Jacob Rothschild and RIT Capital, it was just fortuitous timing. I think if I'd gone out and tried to raise a fund without any track record at all, I would have failed. You know, it was the benefit of, uh, you know, of meeting someone at the right time that was looking for more exposure uh, to this space. Um, so yes, I would certainly say, you know, luck and good timing plays a part of it. It always does. So at the end of the interview, we like to finish with a question to showcase a more personal side. So how have you been occupying your free time in quarantine and have you picked up any new hobbies? Well, I would say there's not been a huge amount of free time in quarantine. I've got a few friends who've, um, you know, their businesses have, have really shut down. Um, so it's been probably one of the most intense periods of my, of my working life. But at the same time, having spent a large part of it uh, at home, you know, one of the things I've done, which has been um, quite cathartic, has been cooking. So, um, you know, I've got three kids, two of whom have also kind of developed a, a taste for good food. So, uh, yeah, that's been, that's been a lot of fun. One, learning new skills and two, doing it with family as well. So, you know, if there's one thing I take out of, um, uh, of lockdown, it's uh, learning how to cook salt-baked fish. So if you don't know what that is, that's kind of getting a big, big piece of fish, like a sea bass or a sea bream, two kilos, and you kind of create this crust um, based out of rock salt. And then you stick it in the, in the oven and it kind of, you need a little chisel uh, when it's done because it hardens. And then the fish cooks inside and it tastes incredible. All the more it kind of cooks with the, uh, you know, with the salt uh, and it's incredibly tender. Uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing dish. You get a lot in the Mediterranean. If, if you're ever in Greece or Turkey or Malta, they make it amazing salt-baked fish. But anyway, that's my, um, that's probably the only talent I've, uh, I've developed in the past three months. Oh, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm cooking myself. I'm looking for new recipes. So salt-baked fish uh, might be next. Salt-baked sea bass, look it up. I was just about to say, what's the best fish? Okay, sea bass. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, great, Tim. It was great to have you on the podcast today. And and thank you for coming on and making time during this hectic time. Thanks, Ron. Great to chat. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know your thoughts in the comments. If you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.